You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Kamala Shamsi. Kamala was born and grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, and now lives in London and is the author of eight novels, including Burnt Shadows, A God in Every Stone, and Homefire, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a professor of creative writing at the University of Manchester. Her most recent novel, Best of Friends, is out now and available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Kamala and I discussed what would have happened if, after graduating from university, she had not been able to attend a creative writing MFA in Massachusetts and therefore returned to Karachi instead of staying in America and continuing to write there. Along the way, we discussed the destructive nature of guilt, the implications of early setbacks and successes, and how a new friendship is a lot like a romance. Hi, Kamala. Hello. How are you, Miriam? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Well, thank you for asking me. Total pleasure. And it was a complete pleasure to read your new book, Best of Friends. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm not alone in absolutely rejoicing in a novel which has a female friendship at its center. But thinking about it and thinking about the path that you and I are going to explore today, it felt like there was at the very least, uh, another juxtaposition, if not another relationship. And that's between two cities, Karachi and London. But I wondered if you could say just a little bit about the book and about those relationships that are at its core. Sure. Um, so Best of Friends really is a novel of friendship, but particularly of childhood friendship, which is a different kind of friendship to the ones we make later on. Um, and it's that kind of friendship, and many people listening will know this one, where you become friends really early on, almost before you know what your own character is or what you believe in. You just know you like this person, you sit next to them in class, you play hopscotch together, you get on. And that is the beginning of a friendship that can actually take you through your life. And as you grow up, you can actually discover you are and you become very, very different people. Um, and there might be a moment where you look at each other and think, as adults, if we were to meet each other for the first time today, maybe we wouldn't be friends. Maybe we wouldn't even like each other. Um, so it's that friendship. And the two friends in, in, in the novel are called Zara and Mariam. We first meet them in Karachi in 1988. They're 14 years old and already 10 years into a friendship. And it's the first moment that there's a little sort of hesitation in the friendship because they are at that moment of adolescence where their bodies are changing, their hormones are changing, their relationship 
and understanding of sexuality and um, you know how they're being looked at and who they're looking at is all shifting and in ways that feel that don't get discussed. Um, so they don't talk to each other, and it's the first sort of silences in their friendship. But it's also another kind of moment of change because in the world outside in Pakistan, dictatorship has ended and a 35-year-old woman has come to power, which makes them feel anything is possible for girls. Um, and in this sort of heady moment of rejoicing, they make certain decisions which leads them into a, a situation, which we won't go into in too much detail, but um, it's a situation of a certain kind of peril, um, which puts another shadow in their friendship, which we actually pick up on 30 years later when the novel resumes in London. They are women in their 40s, both very successful in different walks of life, very different now. It's absolutely clear how different they are. Um, and they're still the best of friends. But the question is, will that continue forever? Do you have a friendship like that? My best child friend is a boy. Uh, we've been the best of friends since we were about four or so. Um, he is. He works for Goldman Sachs in New York. And I wonder where our paths would cross, particularly. And if they did, you know. I just think we should jump right into your path. Is that, how do you feel about that? I think that, because um, I'm interested also to see what your friendships end up like. So uh, your path starts around university. And I wonder if before we begin, if you could just give a little bit of context. So it's, I mean, relevant to this conversation. Say, I grew up in Karachi. I grew up always wanting to be a writer. Um, and most people in my school, in my high school, went on to college in America. It was this moment where American universities were attracting foreign students. They were giving a lot of financial aid. And my school was kind of a feeder school into um, the American university system. So I ended up at a place called Hamilton College, which was a small liberal arts college in upstate New York in the middle of the snow belt five hours from everywhere and uh and I was there and what my, year sorry what so year is this so I went there in 1991 okay. um and so we're really moving to 94 which was the year in which I was graduating um and I graduated in three rather than four years because I had all these credits from from school and I loved my life at Hamilton I was having a fantastic time but I always loved it every summer and winter when I went back to Karachi which I still deeply thought of as home and my assumption had been I'll finish you know I'll finish with my BA and then I'll go back and then at the start of my final year um, a friend of mine my friend Tony who was also a creative writing student like me he said well I'm applying for MFA programs why don't you and and I said oh okay and it's only while thinking about this conversation with you, Miriam, that I realized the extent to which I clearly wasn't really sold totally on the idea because I only applied to four in a kind of, well, if this works out, we'll see. And it's not just that I needed to get in, but I needed to get financial aid. You know, I mean, the rupee to dollar exchange rate was made it sort of impossible for me to pay my way through. But I, I think I just, it was sort of, if this is going to happen, it'll happen. And I think maybe that something will come through that that was very much sort of my attitude that, you know, led my, uh, a life where things tend, tended to work out. Um, and I thought, well, if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. And either way, it'll be fine. So I applied to four MFA programs. Two said no, two said yes. Of the two that said yes, one made it clear that there was no money involved. So that was out of the question, which left the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And I knew that there were a number, a limited number 
of teaching assistant positions available. And if you got one of those, you would get a, a waiver of all the fees plus a stipend to live on. And so I applied for this and had a, a phone interview. And even as I was speaking to the person, I knew, well, you know, I'm I'm still 20 myself and I've had no teaching experience. And, and I was right because I didn't get it. And I thought, okay, well, that's it. I'll go back to Karachi. But the reason I had applied to this particular program was that I knew someone who taught there, who was a wonderful Kashmiri poet called Agha Shahid Ali. And he used to teach at Hamilton when I started there. So he'd been my professor on a couple of creative writing classes and was very encouraging of my work and had encouraged me to apply to UMass. And he found out through someone we knew in common that I hadn't got this teaching position and therefore I wasn't coming. And he had his office down the hall from the woman who made the decision about who got the teaching assistant positions. And he walked down the hall and and then he walked back to his office, called me up, and I was in my dorm room. The phone rang. And I it's one of those sort of flashbulb memories you really recall. Um, and I recall the phone was on the floor and had a really long extension cord. These were the days of landlines, of course. And I remember standing in my room with this phone to my ear. I still have such a vivid memory of it. And it's this beautiful upstate New York spring outside. And he says, you've got the position. You're coming here next year. So you think, well, okay, so obviously that was important. The real significance of that actually comes just about six months later in November that year. Because in November that year, there's a, you know, I'm now in Massachusetts and there's a conference for creative writing students to meet agents and editors. Okay. And we're all asked to submit work that will be looked at by one agent or editor. In this, there is one English agent by the name of Alexandra Pringle. And my work goes into her pile. She got a pile of work and didn't like anything in there except my story, which meant that when she came out to this group, she spent the whole time talking about my story and how much she loved it. So everyone in the room hated me. It gave me the courage to go up to her afterwards. And I had seen in her bio that she used to work at at an editor for Virago Classics, which was the great feminist publishers. And so as a kind of opening gambit to the conversation, I said, oh, you used to work at Virago. My great aunt was published by them as a republishing of a Virago modern classic. And she said, who was your great aunt? And I said, her name was Atia Hussain. And this beautiful, glamorous, incredibly articulate agent for a moment was just speechless. And then she said, I published those books. And I said, oh, and she said, I believe in things like this. And then she said, I love your short story turn it into a novel and send it to me. Um, Do you believe in those kinds of things? Well, I remember at the moment she said, I believe in these things. I remember very clearly, very cheekily thinking, I don't, but I'm going to go with it. But now (laughs) I think maybe I do. You know, I was, I was foolish in 21. And now I know that, you know, you, you don't pretend to know that you understand how the universe works. Um, That feels very wise. But because she had said, take this short story, which is four pages long, and make it into a novel, it gave me purpose and direction, and it gave me something very specific. And so I just, you know, I I sat down and I wrote the thing, and I sent it to her. And it wasn't very good, but she did this incredible sort of editing masterclass for me, really, which taught me a lot about how the novel works and how you write novels. And I rewrote it under her guidance. Um, All this while I was still at the MFA program. So I had the structure and the time to be doing that. Um, And then before I even graduated with the MFA, she had signed me on and had found me a publisher in the UK, which was Granta. 
Um, and that was my first published novel. And Alexandra then moved to being an editor at Bloomsbury Books and I moved with her and she has been, you know, she's she's actually retiring at the end of this year and it'll be 28 years that we have been professionally connected. You know, I met her when I was 21 and I'm 49 now. And so my I really feel that my my life as a writer has been, she's been sort of both guide and fairy godmother through it. Um, when I'm asked what advice you give to young writers and I said, if a little piece of good luck comes your way, don't assume it's going to ever happen again. Just grab it. Oh, that's such good advice. So it's if someone says, take a four-page short story and turn to a novel, you don't say, well, how do I do that? You just go and figure it out and do it. Okay. Okay. So, and that obviously sets you on your trajectory to becoming a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to take as your moment, mm-hmm. your poetry professor, yeah. walking down the hallway mm-hmm. to contest you not getting this teaching position. Is that right? Yeah. And he goes to contest it. And the person he's speaking to says, but I've assigned all the classes. So there is no room for me to hire someone else. And that's it. It's May 1994. You've graduated from Hamilton. You had already decided you and you're, you were looking forward to it. You were you're you were thinking about what would happen next in Karachi. My visa's run out. I'm on a Pakistan passport. I have no visa. Fine. And, I and the thing about being on a Pakistan passport is you need a visa for every country of the world. So there is literally no other place I can go. Mm. Right. That's an important okay. You know, I can't do, I'll do a gap year. I'll go backpacking. I mean, you know, the extraordinary freedom, once you have a different kind of passport to do that, there was no question of it. It didn't even occur to me. Okay. So you're, you didn't, the, the world wasn't at your feet in that sense. It was, it was, it's time to go home now. I've had my time. Yeah. Okay. So you go home. So I go home and I think maybe the summer I have fun because the thing about the summer is, oh no, let's, let's backtrack to something. All my closest friends by this point, we're at university in America. Right. Every single one of them. And all my trips back to Karachi had been in the summers and winters when people would come back from university and then you would just, you know, have summer holidays and you'd be with your school friends and it would be party time. So I think the first thing that would happen was I'd, I'd go back and it would be kind of, you know, summer and everyone's around. And then people would start leaving to go back to university because... Unlike me, my other friends were taking four years to finish their under American undergraduate education, as most people did. So I think there would have been this moment around August when I would become very aware that the Karachi I'd been dreaming of was the Karachi of my school years, surrounded by this thick network of friends. And now they're all leaving. Well, let's get so first off, where are you living? Are you back home, like in your family home? Yeah, I'm back at home with my parents, my um, sister and our dog. Was the dog still alive at this point? The younger, yes, he was. Alex the Labrador. Alex the Labrador. Alex the Labrador, who's now quite aging, and there's not much time left for Alex the Labrador. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to hear that about yes. Alex. Yeah, the last days okay. of Alex, I think. No. Oh, okay. All right. So Alex is is sort of slow moving around the house, and then Alex you're... Is slow moving around the house. Yes. Um, okay. In fact, he's at the point where we think he's deaf because he stopped responding. And then you realize he can always hear the word dinner. Dinner! <laughs> and then you realize he's not deaf. He's just reached that age where he's taking this attitude. If you want me, you come here. I'm not going to come running to you. 
I feel like I want to have reached that age now. So yes, so now it's so I'm I'm at home with my parents, with my sister. We get on. This is you know an important thing. So you know we get on. Now it's the end of the summer. My friends are leaving, and I have no close friends. And I'm someone to whom you know, which is why I write this novel later. You're someone to whom the world of friendship is very important. And I'm just wondering if there's any particular reason why, or if you just grew up with, you've described your one very close friend. I grew up with, and I was in the same school from the age of four to 18, which meant that by the time you left school, those were really strong friendships, you know, and they meant- Yeah, that's a long run. Yeah. And through college, we kept in touch because again, most people went off to American university. So there were a lot of sort of spring breaks in Boston sort of thing, you know, and also- Email had just, this is also important, I mean, just to go back in time, email had started at the level of universities. So you could speak to your other friends in American universities over email, but email had not reached the wider world. So in Karachi, I didn't have email, certainly not in 1994. No. So there's a different level of not being in touch with your friends. Um, So the other thing that is very, very crucial to what's going on is that the 90s, and particularly the period around 1994 and then 1995, were really dark years in Karachi. There was a lot of violence, but it meant that the daily experience of your life was that you knew there was a lot of violence and danger. And there were these flare-ups where basically you'd be sitting at home because, you know, you'd be opening the news headlines, you'd be 20 people killed in the city, 30 people killed in the city. It's infinitely complex, but it had to do with infighting between different political parties who represented different ethnic groups. Okay. The top line. There are many other lines. Um, And so it meant that the atmosphere was very difficult and there was a sense, I mean, there was a sense of danger, you know, particularly by the time we get to 1995, that anytime you're out, you feel there's a sense of threat and you feel that, you know, because you're that young, you think this could be endless. And now I'm just living in a city where there's violence, where I can't go out freely in the way I used to, um, where I feel a sense of threat at all times. And I think, I think I would have felt quite low, which Mm. is not something that happens in my, in the life I've actually led because I have just had these moments of luck and sort of ridden the wave. I'm in Karachi. Am I writing? What do you think? I think probably because it's just, it's what I, it's actually what I'd always done. I mean, from the time I was 11 when I wrote my first novel and it is, Were you? yeah, um, it was about dog heaven because my dog had died. So there you go. You see the theme. This not was, Alex. No, another not Alex. There was Topsy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Topsy, the Russian Samoid. Um, <laughs> that's extra. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank I, you. I, that's really that's extraordinary. Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. So so I'd always okay. so I would be writing. I don't know what because you know that first novel happened because Alexander Pringle said take take the short story make the novel. Mm. Um, had you written that same short story? I mean, you would have still written that same short story. Yeah, Yeah. I had written that same short story. And it was, of all the stories I had written, it was my favorite. What was it about? Oh, it's a four-page story about a boy who is lying on a roof at night looking at the stars and and he sees another boy flying a kite on the roof next to him and then the boy falls off. And it's kind of that first moment of, you know, a child's encounter with with death 
um, a very mm. cheerful subject. So I'm, I'm fairly sure I would be writing. I don't think it's possible I'd be writing the same novel. Yeah, I think that stands to reason. Yeah. You're in a completely different environment. Yeah. You haven't had Alexandra kind of mm-hmm. giving you that kind of yeah. structure and framework. I don't know. Am I writing short stories? I suspect I'm pretty sure at some point I would have moved the novel. Let's give you a little context and that might help us figure out what you're writing too. So you're you're staying at home for the time being. You're not trying to get an apartment or anything like that. No, because also in Karachi you didn't. Everyone sort of just went, whether you were boy or girl, you the understanding was you moved back home and you stayed there till you got married, possibly. You know, then some people carried on staying there. Maybe I say, well, okay, for some period of time. I'll just work on the writing, but then I will get a job. Okay. What's your period of time? I don't know. What is my period of time? I suppose the question is also how, maybe it's not that long because maybe the fact that I don't have close friends around, maybe I want, you know, the social aspect of Mm. a workplace environment. I'll tell you what I don't have and what I had become accustomed to at Hamilton is I don't have writer friends. Mm. And that's the thing. I have the childhood friends who are your friends because they've always been your friends. But I'm at that moment where I've had three years at university and discovered actually the excitement of having friends who are interested in the same kind of things as you are. So all my university friends were either creative writing or English majors. Okay. So you're lacking you're lacking that kind of connection and friendship. So I think maybe I, I decide, I suspect... And I have a feeling this may have been in my mind when I knew I was going, when I had the idea of going back to Karachi. I might have decided to be an English literature teacher. Ah. And my reasoning would have been that, well, I love, you know, I love literature. I love books. Um, But my reason would also have been the school day in Karachi is done by 1.30. Then I'll have time to write. And I'll have summers and winters off and then I'll have time to write. Yep. Right. Okay. And what's the, what's the pathway to becoming an English literature teacher in Karachi? Well, my pathway would have been very straightforwardly. I would have gone back to my old high school where I knew the teachers loved me. And is it nearby? Is the, the high school, is it near where you live? It is a drive through sort of residential area with sort of, you know, bigger houses and things more spread out. Um, and then you go through sort of, you drive through what is old Karachi because these where I where I my parents' home is is actually on reclaimed land that used to be the ocean. So it wasn't built till the seventies or eighties. It used to be the ocean. Yeah, it's reclaimed land. Um, oh. Yeah, I live on the ocean. Um, I don't think I knew that was possible. Um, and so you um, drive through the old part of town to the old colonial buildings. Um, you know, and the sort of very grand avenues that, that used to be, you know, yes, just filled with sort of official buildings or the private members club that, you know, only the British, only white people could join at one point and all of that. Um, and then you go through these crowded market areas and electronic markets were a big thing in the 80s where, you know, suddenly you could get VCRs and Walkmans and hi-fi stereos. So there are lots of electronic markets. And then you go past these movie theatres where they are big painted posters of the movies that are on, um, which are all either Pakistani or Chinese movies, lots of martial arts stuff. Um, and then you you turn a corner and you are still in this sort of crowded area and you come to 
the school, which was, again, a colonial school. So I suppose then the staff room, because they're always younger teachers. Yeah. So maybe that is where the friends come from. Okay. Who else is there? Who's around in the staff room? Um, so there are the older teachers who taught me. So I'm a little bit intimidated by them, of course, but but also <laughs> quite keen to prove I'm not a student anymore. And, you know, uh, you can look at me in some other ways. Um, but I think they're probably, I mean, when I was at school, there was always sort of a couple of, you know, bright young university graduates who had just come out of, I don't know, Columbia or Yale or somewhere. And so my guess is there's someone who is like me, who has just been at university, come out, um, and is possibly looking for the same things that I am, which is some some tie or connection to this university life we've left behind and these, these sort of conversation, the kind of conversations you have at university. So, yeah, they become, oh, my person. Now I found my person. And then everything shifts. Ah, because that was my experience with, with when I was, first went to America to college. I was quite homesick at first, and then I found friends. And it all changes. It all changes when you find your people. It really, really does. From a really early age, it's what helps you navigate the, mm. the world, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, okay. Okay, but here's the thing. Tell me. The thing is... I still really want to be a published writer. So, okay, things are are falling into place in terms of, you know, sort of your social life. And, okay, I've got some structure to my day now. Uh, Possibly I'm finding out that teaching takes more time than I knew. And I'm discovering something that actually I did find out some years later, which is teaching uses the same part of your brain as writing. Does it? It does. So if you have a tiring teaching day, it is very, very hard to come home and write. You would think it would be at least marginally different, especially in the sort of uh, solitary versus communal aspect of it. But it really, you feel you can, you can feel it in the same space. Yeah, it's the language part of your brain, and particularly teaching sort of literature and all that. It is, you know, it is very much that. Um, and teaching so much of teaching is about making connections between things, between what your student has said and the book, or between different bits of the book. And writing is so much of that. Of fiction is making connections. So I don't have the energy for writing that I thought I would. All right. Yeah. What do you what do you do about that? One option is that I sort of let the writing fade, but I don't think that happens because that the one constant in my life has been that I had the strong sense of this is what I need to be doing. So other yeah. things have to work around it. Um, so maybe I write on weekends, you know, um, or maybe I say there are, although this sounds very unlike me, but, but maybe I say I wake up an hour earlier and write for an hour before going to school. I mean, the question is, what is the writing project I found? I don't know. I mean, the, the first novel that I ended up writing was largely about growing up in a period of military rule in Pakistan. Yeah you know, about a young boy growing up in a period of military rule in Pakistan. Maybe I write a different novel that is, you know, I think it's quite likely that for your first novel, particularly if you are in your early 20s, you are drawing on the stuff of childhood. Sure. So I think I end up, which is interesting, writing something that's covering the same terrain, but quite likely doing it in a different way. 
Um, and also I'm in Karachi, so I have a different sense of the kind of quotidian and the texture of the air, right? I'm not writing it sitting in Massachusetts in my flat with the skylight. What was that experience like sitting in Massachusetts with your skylight and like the beauty of New England around you and trying to sort of beam yourself back into Karachi for the creative process? Maybe there was more nostalgia in the writing than would have been the case if I'd been sitting in Karachi. But here's something else, which is, and this this goes to not just what are the facts of your life, but what is your character? Right. Okay. So I go back to Karachi and that summer is difficult or the end of the summer is difficult because my friends are leaving the city is not the city of childhood and growing up. There's a space of violence. I feel sort of cut off from my writing friends. I feel cut off from the wide, wider writing world. Um, and I think that makes me that would make me experience something about the world not always going your way in the world, not being your oyster. Which is interesting because you said at the start that in general things have kind of Worked out. Yeah. Um, so suddenly you're not somebody for whom things totally work out. Yeah. So there's that awareness in you. But it also means you don't trust that, that you know, things will carry on just finding their way. And maybe you have a sense of, I need to direct events more. Mm. You know, not just, well, I'll sit here and I'll write and something will turn up, which really was largely how I have lived my life, you know. Um, I'll sit and write and if something sounds interesting, I'll, I'll follow it. It is. It's a. It's a. It's a different stance, isn't it? It's a. It's a sort of proactive stance versus a versus a passive one. So okay. So suddenly you're somebody who feels you need to, what pursue a little bit more. Yeah. So again, possible because if you look back at my first novel, it's full of nostalgia and optimism and idealism. Even though it's in the spirit of military dictatorship, it's about actually that is ending, and you know, and and maybe and I'm you know, this is a very troubled moment in Pakistan's democracy where, yeah, there's democracy, but that means that these political parties are fighting in violent and bloody ways. Mm. I don't know that I could have written that optimistic book in that same way. So maybe it's a different kind of book. Maybe I'm a different kind of person writing it. Can you say anything more about what what practically would have been different? I don't know. I think I think maybe... I don't know, maybe it would have been a bit darker at the edges. You know, mm. maybe it wouldn't have that sense that, yeah, things are bad, but it's all going to be fine. I write it, I finish the first draft. Now, mm. I'm still someone who my first drafts require someone very smart to read them and talk to me very honestly about what I needed to, to make it better. It, what's interesting, I mean, were you like that before Alexandra? Because she obviously set the mold to a certain extent. As in, did you, when you used to write short stories, did you need somebody to workshop it before you could see what it no, was? but I've never needed it with, with short stories. And I mean, I wrote in perfect short stories, but it's to do with the way I think of novels, which is I, I do a lot of making up as I go along. But also I think with that first novel, I mean, the, the issue with, with that first novel was because I'd been writing so many short stories, I didn't know how to write a novel. I was sort of, I mean, the thing Alexandra said about the first draft was it's as though every chapter feels it needs to have this sort of narrative arc like a short story. And, and you know, that's not how the novel works. And you have to let it breathe in different ways. So I write a novel and it is an imperfect first draft and I do know it. So what I 
know then is I need a structure with readers. I think at a certain point, also aware that this book is going to have to get to an agent somewhere else. I think I do start thinking, actually, in this funny way, we go back to where I was before and thinking, I really do want to go to an MFA program. Okay, so what do you do? Well, I reapply and this time it's not to four. I mean, this time I applied to many more. And by now I have teaching experience. And I'm older. So now I feel I'm in a stronger position, yeah, to get those teaching, those TA positions. Also by 95, all my friends are now graduating from college and they're all getting jobs in America. Because it's the 90s, it's boom time in the American economy, right? And it's just hiring left, right, and center. And they're all, you know, going into these big companies that can then sponsor them for visas. Um, right. So I have a whole bunch of friends suddenly living in New York and having a grand yeah. time. Right. So so there's a part of me that is now saying, okay. Let's try again. Let's try again. Okay. Where do you end up? I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing because now I have so many friends in New York, I'm guessing I'm applying to a bunch of places in New York. Well, so the, the, previously I'd gone to Colombia and they'd said there's no money attached. Okay, but now, because I am that person who no longer assumes that things are just going to fall into place, so I can apply for the teaching assistant positions, I think I'm probably looking around for what kind of scholarships and fellowships exist. Okay. Right. So so I'm just, you know, I think I've, I've become in a way that I really never have been. I've become really efficient about seeing what are all the options out there. And I suspect New York might be quite high on my list. So let's say, you know, so let's say Columbia, which the first time took, accepted me, but said we don't have money. If we're dreaming, let's say the second time they say, okay, and, and I've applied for scholarships. And let's say I've got okay. one to fund my way through. So now I can be in New York. In, in New York at Columbia. In New York, at Columbia, in 1996. And not only Fine. are a lot of my close friends from high school there, a couple of my very good friends from undergraduate life are also around there. I just want to pause for one second on this, because hmm. I think this character trait that's shifted in you is really interesting, and this mm -hmm. idea of becoming somebody who's more proactive and goes after things. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm just wondering if in your real life that's a trait that you ever think about I mean, I think we probably all wish we were more efficient or more go-getter or more anything. Like, is I mean, it, is it? Yeah. I mean, I sl even as I say that, you know, I'm thinking, actually, what would my close friends say? And they would, there was, a, there'd be a part of them that would be like, you know, if you want something, you're quite single-minded about it. Ah. You know, it's, I, I don't, I'm not a dither. I'm not, well, should I, shouldn't I? I sort of, you know, make decisions and then follow through. But largely the decisions I've made have not had to be, I mean, there was a decision of a moment where I said, I'm moving to London. There's this visa for writers. I'm applying for it. I'm moving and just, you know, I'm going to start a whole new life there sort of thing. Um, mm. So I have I have that in me, but I also have in me a very kind of let's go with the flow. I don't plan ahead. I suppose that's a difference. I'm not a huge planner ahead because I think you never know what the life's going to throw at you, you know. Um, yes, fair. And also that I am generally fairly comfortable in my life. So I don't feel the need to make radical moves. 
So you've gotten you've gotten a scholarship to Columbia, which is amazing because their tuition is like particularly extortionate. Where are you living? Are you living up on the Upper West somewhere? Most of my friends at this point are kind of midtown or lower, but I need to be near campus. So somehow I'm living, you know, in some shared student accommodation, I suppose. So you're doing your MFA. You're working. Are you working on presumably you've submitted this novel and you're so now I'm working on making this novel better but the difference is of course there's no Alexander Pringle and I'm in New York so I'm not going to be sending stuff to agents in London no I'm going to be sending it to New York so my publishing life will not be centered on London no no and was that ultimately the reason that it felt like it was a good idea to move to London was that your publishing life was centered there yeah, I mean, I moved to London about almost a decade after my first novel was out. So I had four books. And, in you know, basically what happened was between 1998, when the first book was published, and 2007, when I moved, I used to, you know, go and basically I'd, I'd get in advance and I'd go and I'd spend some time in London. I'd be there around the publication of a novel and then there'd be events after. And I liked London, so I'd sort of hang around for a while and then I'd run for money and, you know, go and write the next thing. Um, and over the course of the years, I just got to know more and more people's and, you know, sort of my professional and social life both shifted increasingly to London, but in a kind of gradual space, somewhere between 1998 and 2007, I thought, yeah, I'd actually quite like to, you know, I spend a few months here every year. I'd quite like to. And where were you based? Were you based in Massachusetts? I was based in Karachi by now. Oh, you were based in Karachi, right. Actually, for 10 years, I was based nowhere because between, particularly once 2000 comes along, I, in any 15-month period, I would be in Karachi, say, six months. Mm. In London, maybe four months, five months. And then every third term, I had a recurring position teaching creative writing at Hamilton College because by now I was a published writer. So I would get these teaching gigs. Um, so there was this decade in which I would I really just kind of not making a choice between these three countries which I was all attached to. And because I was publishing and getting advances and, and because I was a published writer, it was giving me the freedom and the luxury to, to have the visiting assistant professor position at Hamilton, um, to have the advance to live off for a while in London and the reason to be there on publication and then the writing space in Karachi. I guess it calls up this question of sort of, I think different people feel different things on, on how much we actually decide in our lives. I had a, I had a therapist once who said that you never, she said the big decisions always make themselves, Yeah. you know? So I used to just obsess over so many things. And then if you look back over the sort of trajectory of life, like the, the biggies, you know, marriage, moving, mm -hmm. um, kids, you know, all of that stuff, they seem to sort of, there's an inevitability about them. So that's the word. So, that's that's the thing that I was have been able to have in my life is that sense of it. I've never obsessed about a decision in my life. Mm. You know, there's just a point where some something seems clear and I think, right, I'll go there. But I think this other version of me would have been a different person because there wouldn't have been the inevitability. Do you feel, and this is, I'm showing my Jewishness here, do you feel guilt about how easy it's been to I was in, I'm, I'm picturing my Jewish mother kind of going, yeah, yeah, you yeah, think I things know. are really it's, easy. I, yeah. But part of possibly the reason why I don't obsess about these decisions, it, I, I have, I, I don't feel much 
no and no i think guilt is actually one of the world's more destructive and pointless emotions i think i believe in having a sense of responsibility so if you are doing something that is hurting other people mm you need to have a sense of cognizance and responsibility and that's faced in most cases you can be cognizant of that before you make the decision and it should factor into the decision um mm. doesn't always but it should but the kind of guilt of you know things have gone well for me in these ways no and but at the same token I don't feel resentment of envy or envy about people for whom other kinds of things are going well, you know. I I agree with you about the destructiveness of guilt. Yeah. Um well okay then let's go back to your fabulous life at Columbia. So you're at Columbia and you're workshopping your novel. Um So but here's a question is so these worlds have always been separate. There was the world of my childhood friends from Karachi and then there was the world of kind of the the university friends with the shared interests. right now i'm in new york and closest childhood friends are there mm but they're on a very different track now they are you know in the corporate world i am in this kind of reminding myself of the pleasure of being with with my with sort of other writers you know and the fun of the university setting and i wonder if i i wonder if i'm not a very good friend to my childhood friends what does that mean there's the new friendship is like a romance right so so you have and particularly because it's been this longed for thing the longed for thing was to be back in an environment with other writers um you know having these conversations about writing showing each other our work the intimacy that comes from that um and then your your older friends who you're really really comfortable with um but also the corporate ones they they you know they are being they're working 17 hour days um and they're leading very different kinds of lives and um yeah maybe you just feel oh we're on different paths and you don't appreciate the old friendness of it in in the right way because you're so excited by the new friends um, mm. so maybe you think it's just a lot more fun to hang out with the new friends also with the new friends you can you know you can present the best version of you and they'll believe it whereas your old friends they know they know who you really are they know all your flaws and failures and how to push your buttons Um it's so true. They've yeah. they've seen you at your most ridiculous yeah. whatever sort of stupid high school things you got up to. Yeah. What about um what about your best friend? Who's at Morgan Stanley? Is um, he is he also out of the picture for a little while? I think I think I I think possibly pushed to the side of the frame a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe he'll come back. Let's see. Yeah, I suspect he'll come back. So I have these two years and at the end of those two years my visa runs out again. The visa that runs out really does give you a sense of clarity and purpose and I think this time around because I had been back to Karachi at such a bad moment in Karachi's history. I think I have a much stronger sense of okay. I don't want to do that again. But also that that sense that I had for a very very long time but Karachi is my real home and it is what I write about and where I mm. write about. So that might have been difficult. So maybe I'm looking at those two months as a period where actually I need to write and I need to try and find an agent and editor in this time frame because then I can go back. Okay, so what what do you accomplish in those two years? Do you finish your book? I think I finished the book. I I you know, I am someone who finishes a book generally in less than two years. So let's say I finish a book and I start sending it out to agents all over the place. But I think the other thing that happens is I start to fall in love with New York. I think, you know, to be 
sort of 23 in New York in the 90s when there's a real feeling of boom time. It's, you know, Clinton presidency. We haven't had 9-11 yet. There's no George Bush. There's no Iraq war at this point. There's a feeling that this city is the center of the universe. Um, and to be young in it is exciting. Okay, so also what does that mean? So you come to the end of your two years, your visa is up. Are you going to try to extend it so you can stay? Um, I think what happens is, yeah, is, is that I is that I talk to my friends who live there and, and they say, well, you need to get a visa. But the thing about getting a visa is you need a corporation that has the, the time and the muscle to apply for a visa. So it's not that you can just live there and work for some tiny literary magazine. Do I try and apply for a job in publishing? Because by now... I think I could be a fairly good at sort of lower editorial level. I've got some critical reading skills. You know, maybe we go down that route. Because what I don't know and what I learned, that actually there are a lot of would-be writers who enter publishing and it kind of ruins them as writers <laughs> because they can't stop hearing the head of the, the voice of the marketing department in their head. It's quite hard if you're deeply steeped in the market. I know my ability to be single-minded about the writing mm. in any version of me. Mm. That, I think, is what is carrying. That, I, I, think, I would say that is what connects different versions of me. So I would say, you know what? I'm sick of being a penniless student in New York. Wouldn't it be nice to be in New York? Also, my friends with the corporate jobs, they're now, they have incomes, right? Yeah. So, no. I mean, those salaries are very different than publishing salaries, obviously. Yes, they are. But also my friends are very nice. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, yeah, we'll all go out together and, you know, someone will pick up the bill because they're my old friends. So That's a really beautiful thing about old friendships, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, I, I'm going to say that the child friend, he's absolutely still in my life, um, you know, because there's space for the great thing about friendship is you have space for different kinds of friends. Yes. Um so, yeah, I go into publishing in New York. Okay, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm a, I'm a sort of, you know, young editorial assistant somewhere. Okay. Some house that's big enough to pay you just about enough to, to exist yeah. in the city. Yes. Okay. And I can stay, you know, my, my friends now, I might say, well, they might say, well, you can have the smaller room and we'll, we'll rent a two-bedroom place. Oh, my other best friend actually has just moved from Boston by this point to New York. This is my friend Tushna, who was living in in Boston till the late 90s, and then she moved back. So she and I live in... So now I'm back with childhood friend. Where are you guys all living? You're in this small room, but where in the city? Well, this particular friend of mine actually lived from a very early stage Upper West Side and would have said, would have said oh, you know, take this second bedroom, you, you can pay less rent. I suspect that would have happened. So you're going to work yeah. somewhere downtown, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, you're busy writing also mm -hmm. around. The, and you've you've obviously learned the skill of writing in the mornings and on the weekends. Is that what you're doing still to keep going? Yeah, I'm discovering it's harder than I thought. But I'm, okay. I'm yeah, I'm, I think I'm fairly single-minded about it. So I'm doing it. I'm getting it done. You know, that first okay. is inching towards a state that maybe a publisher will will take on. Um, but I think I think before long, I, I think it does get hard because you you need the time. It's you need the time for the work life, the writing life, and the social life. I'm going to say a thing that I wouldn't have thought. I said I might 
it's possible the writing slips. <gasps> because, and this is the truth of it, that many of the finest writers I know who did love the writing actually don't, have never ended up publishing because, you know, you get into a state where you're, well, I need to pay the bills. And then I'm exhausted at the end of a workday. A New York workday is long and tiring. So now I'm tired and now I just want to hang out with my friends. And and the novel kind of, you know, maybe disappears. Maybe for a little bit. Maybe I look around and think, well, I don't know, a couple of years. Let's give it. Maybe it gets sent out to publishers and they're like, well, we're not quite sure. You know. Um because it's a different novel, so who knows? Maybe it's not working as well. Mm. Um, and again, because this is that version of me with setbacks, possibly I get a bit demoralized after a first round of rejections. And it just, you know, I say, well, I'll start, I'll start working on rewrite next month, next month, next month. Um, I, I mean, I think it really is an act of hubris to assume that no matter what, you would have been not only a writer, but a committed and successful professional writer. Because I know that the fact of being a published writer gives me space to write. Mm. It also gives me a certain confidence to, you know, try out things. Um, and it gives me time and it gives me money. But I also think part of why this is maybe happening is because I quite like working with writers in publishing. It's possible that I like being an editor, you know, that rather than being very envious, so maybe you are working with a different quality of writer and you think, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to work with a really, really good writer on their really, really good book? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, why don't we go with that for a bit? I think it's possible that just like the, just like your friends, it might, it might mm -hmm. sort of dip out for a bit and then dip back in. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. So you're working on that for a while. Presumably if you're really loving it and feeling quite strongly about it and devoting all of your mm -hmm. time other than your social time to it, you do okay. Do you get promoted? Yeah. I'm good at my job. Of course you are. And I'm quite nice in the workplace. People like having me around. So you're making your way up the ladder. Is there anyone interesting at work, either a mentor or a colleague There's, who... Yeah, there are, you know, you, you discover one, the nice thing with publishing is that there are these really smart women working in it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And and in my 20s, I was really, you know, I was one of those women who was looking for, you know, the older woman mentor. They're so important. I mean, I, you know, mm. I think we should all be taught sort of in high school and university that finding somebody like that is can be kind of life-changing. You know, I'm, I met Alexandra. And you have Alexandra. You know, she was... That was it. Remains it, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do when she retires? Um, still stick around in her life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would be sad. But now I have a brilliant publisher in America as well. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky to, to have someone. But yeah, there'll be a big hole in my life, mm. you know, as a writer. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so, all right. Of course, the interesting moment then is, of course, 9-11 happens and I'm the Muslim in New York. Yep. Yeah. So at this point, I'm 28. So let's say I'm just a couple of years out. Yep. Okay. Um, and you're ensconced in the world of publishing and you've got all your good friends around who are also the Muslims in New York, presumably. Yeah. yeah. Everyone okay. stayed. All my friends stayed. Did they? Yeah. 
I mean, did they, what was their experience after? Um, their experience, I remember on the day itself calling them up, I mean, you know, particularly the best friend, um, and actually not being, because no one could get through on phones, and finally calling his mother in Karachi who said they're, fi- they're all fine. Mm. All their friends are fine. Um, but, and then when I finally got hold of him late in the evening, a whole bunch of my school friends, they were all together. And I remember being very struck by what they said was, we're in New York, we'll be okay. Wow. You know, and, and again, that, 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 that sent, they were New Yorkers by then. And they were like, you know, this other parts of the country may respond differently and we're probably not going to wander out. Yeah. And of course, what happens in the next few years, particularly for the boys, is every time they're entering the country, they are, you know, held in an interrogation room for a couple of hours. Um, mm. But they do still stay. And they have okay. each other, you know. This thing is is you have you have your people. And so now you're you're there amongst your people and you're there too. How does it affect you? Um I think certainly from I think there's a weird experience of otherness that happens. This sort of awareness that even the people who it's not that people are being racist towards you, but people are very aware that you are the Muslim in the room kind of thing. And how should they be talking to you? And how? and I wonder whether, you know, my friends stay on their professional lives are there. I wonder whether there's a bit of me actually that's point that thinks, well, I've kind of let the writing fall away because of this professional life. But there, you know, there is a kind of, there's something has turned in the atmosphere Maybe I'm going to go back to Karachi and actually finish writing that book because now I have the agent. I have lots of publishing contacts by now. Mm-hmm. There is the internet. There is email. You know. I think I go yeah. back. I think I, I <gasps> go back. And what was it like in Karachi then? I mean, in the aftermath of of nine eleven. Um, it was it was weird. It was weird because because the, sort of the world's fo- focused on a particular way on Pakistan. And there were a couple of years where actually what happened was, you know, quite a lot of financial aid was coming in and suddenly you were more important to the world again. Um, mm. And then, and there's a space of time of a few years. And also around this time, new sort of news cha- TV channels have really opened up. So actually a lot of creative people are going back um, because there's suddenly the space for creativity. There are all these TV channels. There's a kind of, you know, liberalizing of the media which only goes so far but actually this is a moment where if you are a creative person it's kind of an interesting place to be so I write the novel yes and it's actually now maybe because I it's sort of I'm not that you know naive 22 year old writing a novel so I think it is actually a darker grittier maybe more ambitious novel in my actual life the first four novels were these very quiet publishing events there were small advances, you know, quite, they weren't getting much. Uh, and they were getting some nice reviews, but there was no, you know, major thing. So let's let's have a different version. Also, what's happened by now is my actual friend in real life, uh, Mohsen Hamid, publishes his first novel, Mott Smoke, mm. which is does really well in America, you know. And so yeah. now the agent can say, you know, you know, you know, well, Pakistan gave you mud smoke. Here's another. <laughs> You've got a good comp title. Yes, yes, yes. You know, from a woman in Karachi. Um, 
Because, I mean, in the mid-90s, sort of the novel from Pakistan didn't really, it wasn't a thing that America knew of. But now most things happened, what smokes happened. Uh, there's some interest. Um, yeah, I think I go back and I and I finish it. And let's say we have a, a very different version of the publishing life where rather than, you know, four small, quiet books and then the fifth one, Burnt Shadows, becomes a bigger thing. And also now it's post 9-11, so the world is sort of interested in the Muslim story. It's interested mm. in Pakistan, Right. In this way that, I mean, I find it just awful to think of as a writer, but it's a fact that if, say, I'm back home in 2001, I'm finishing up this novel, 2002, it goes out in the publishing world at, at this moment where Pakistan is in the press in a particular way. Maybe there's a bigger noise made around it, you know, so it becomes... And then I move into a very... I mean, I think... I'm I'm constantly very grateful that I, I got to ease my way into publishing and I knew the experience of the quieter, smaller book without a lot of expectation on it. Um, but maybe but this is very different. Oh, no, wait, the novel has changed as well because now there's yeah. a military dictatorship again in Pakistan. So I, I'm a little cautious about writing about the military dictator novel. And also I think I've moved away. I've lived these five years in New York. I think it's kind of evolved and changed. So it is a gritty, uh, it's a darker, grittier novel. It's set in Karachi still. I'm not sure that you know, military dictator is at the heart of it in quite the same way. Also, in terms of the book and in terms of your process, I'm interested because obviously you said at the outset is that you're somebody who really needs somebody to have another read on it. Yeah. But you're way past Columbia. You don't have Alexandra. Is your no. agent doing that or do you not need it in the same way? Um, I, I need it, but I've got my agent. Now I've got my MFA friends who I've hung on to. Yeah. Um, well done. I have the agent and, and possibly the, the publishing mentor. Ah, she, she's it. She's the one. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we found her. So actually, I'm going to give her a name. I, I know who it is now. It's, it's Becky Salatan, who's now my US publisher, who's a few years older than me. So, you know, and in fact, published Mosin brilliantly mm. from the start. Um, and yeah, so she's reading. She's a very smart reader. So yeah, the person who I actually en didn't end up with until... Home Fire, which is my seventh novel, I just end up with her a lot earlier. I'm finding different routes to, to getting my people. So, I okay, the childhood friends are all there, and now mm. Becky's there, you know. So now it's feeling a bit familiar and comfortable again. So what happens? So maybe I'm still, in my mind, doing a bit of back and forth. I occasionally go and teach. I occasionally go and London. The question is, by 2007, do I have that same feeling of actually, you know, by 2007, I, in my actual life, I started to write Burnt Shadows, and I realized I don't have to always write about Karachi. Mm. That was also the thing that kept pulling me back, was this city is my subject. So I, And part of what allowed me to move to London in 2007 is I write, start writing Burnt Shadows, which opens in Japan, and I realized I yeah. can write about other places. So, so maybe there's a different trajectory. Maybe once I leave New York... I actually find I'm interested in writing about New York. Oh. Right. And maybe by certainly 2005, I, I'm looking around thinking, you know, what it was to be young Muslim female in New York around 9-11. I'm thinking, I've been thinking about that possibly. Maybe there's a novel around there. And so by the time we're coming to 2007, it's so interesting how, you know, when people say, say to me in, in life, why does the political so often come into the person? 
One of the reasons why I know that I can't make the same decision for Americans say, let's find a kind of visa category for now. Let's say, a, let's say the first book does well. Mm. And I think I could apply for some, you know, right visa, which ridiculously named Alien of Extraordinary Ability. But if I've got a good New York Times review and maybe I've been shortlisted for a prize or something, I have a stab at this, right? Mm. Um, but I can't, I can't land up in New York without a job because health insurance is crippling. Yes, Whereas yes, I can it is. move to London because they have the NHS and I don't need a job. Well, it does then raise this question because, of course, when your book is published in, in New York, your agent is also sending it to London. Mm-hmm. So the book is also published in London. And London is a city I've known my whole life because when I was growing up, we used to go for summer holidays there and some of my friends have ended up there. So by 2007, quite possibly, I think, oh, look, there's this ri- visa for writers to live in London. <laughs> I would qualify for that. <laughs> and I don't have Alexandra Pringle and I don't have the friends that I did otherwise make in London. But but I like London. And maybe I have a sense of, would it hurt? I I qualify for this. I could live in this place. I have some money from an advance. Um, maybe I feel like being somewhere different. I'm getting I'm getting a little itchy in Karachi because I've got very used to being a woman on my own in a city where you can go out at night on your own and so maybe I end up actually 2007 somehow saying well I can't live in New York as a writer but I can do it in London that might be a fun thing to try out just to see how it goes and obviously at this point you've just you've just published the one book yes but in this version of things the one book is I get a big is- advance and it does well it's the biggie. It's the biggie because it kind of also picks up on this particular moment. There was this particular moment where the the world was kind of you know looking for certain kinds of writers from certain kind of places. So, mm. um, so yeah. So then I I land up I land up in London in two thousand seven, and as it happens, a few of my childhood friends from Karachi are there. So I have a basis of people who I know. Right. It's two thousand seven, and. It's a smallish world, literary London, and particularly, you know, writers who are from certain parts of the world. So I'm, I'm thinking, the writers who end up being my very close friends, so people like Tamima Anam from Bangladesh or Hisham Matar from Libya, Bankaj Mishra mm. from India, I think I'd have found them. Yeah, you know, 2007, I'd have gone, and I would have found the same people both my writer people and my Karachi people there. In this Ah. version of this, so they're already my friends. In this version, I come in for the first time and they know each other and I sort of, you know, meet one and then another and then another. But of course, when when we're friends with someone, this is the other thing, is that feels inevitable. So even though I I am now a, a different version of me, I still think they'd still like me, surely. You know, they'd still want to be my friend, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, and so, and is there anything else that feels different because because of because you're arriving on a, on the wave of a mega success? Yeah, I think I like this version of me less because I think if you have huh? the first novel that's a mega success, it's very easy to, for you to appreciate less everything you have and to think it's going to happen with the next book, and you know, you kind of. Yeah. I, I don't think it's good for anyone to move into mega success right away. Certainly not. But but the other no but the other difference is 
I've waited longer. So maybe I am more grateful for it because I didn't, it's not that my first, you know, with, with the actual life, I was 24 when the first book was, I'm 25 when it was published, but 24 when I was told it was going to be published. Um, mm. So maybe the fact that it's taken me longer to get there um, and that I've also the fact that I've worked in publishing and I know how quickly all this can disappear. So I like to hope that I don't take it for granted and that I'm kind of have some humility about the whole thing. I feel like you won't take it for granted. Do you live in the same place? Where do you end up living? Because you don't know the city as well. Um, I do end up living the same place because one of the, the finest of life is, is actually where I live is a flat that was owned by members of my family, which was out on rent for many years. And when I moved there, they were like, well, you can pay us reduced rent. And so I think, yeah, Great. I would be in this very room, in this other life. I'd be in this very room. I think I'd have the same writer friends, but I would be a different person and the books would be different. And the mm. trajectory of the writing life would be different. Maybe I'm, maybe I feel the burden of the next one, you know, because I know having worked in publishing that now there's all this expectation. Also, I got the big advance. So there's a big advance to earn out. There's a different level of expectation. And because I've worked in publishing and I know the conversations that go on, mm. I think the next one, I think I get second novel syndrome. I think it's hard. <gasps> I think it's hard and I get a little bit lost, possibly. But I, I kind of... I think I come out of it. I think I find the novel. I don't know what it is. Uh, possibly now, I think it really is by now. It is the novel of, because I've left New York and I'm thinking back to it and I'm nostalgic about it and I don't know London well enough to write about it. So maybe it's a New York, London novel. Mm. Maybe I get to Best of Friends. Maybe, you know, all this moving around. Um, but instead of Best of Friends being a Karachi you know, Karachi then versus London now, it's a uh, Karachi then versus New York in the years just post 9-11. With the, because, of course, with Best of Friends in the second half, one thing that, that is happening is you have someone who's very aware of kind of things like the rolling back of civil liberties and all that, which if you were living in New York post 9-11, you would be thinking about. Yes, absolutely. Some version of Best of Friends, instead of being my eighth novel, becomes my second. I don't wow. think it's as good. I don't think it's nearly as good because no, you need to learn on the job. Okay, so you you think it's it's not as good? Does it not do as well? Do you sell it? Um, I sell it. I sell it, but I think I I experienced the you know okay that first novel was you were the exciting new debut, and the second one it you know it gets published, it's okay, but it it probably got too large in advance because the first one did well. And it doesn't earn out the advance and it doesn't, you know, and I, you know. So again, this is another version of me which is experiencing different kinds of setbacks and, you know, disappointments. And so in some ways the life is tracking. But I think what really doesn't track is, is the relationship to setback and disappointment is a very different one. Um, Say more. And also the relation to success, success is a different one. So I have an early experience of vast success mm. I didn't have. And then I have what it feels like to come down from that at a point where, I mean, I think at, you know, at this point in my life, if, if the next book doesn't do particularly well, 
you know, I'll say, well, you know, I've had books that do better and books that do worse. I and mean, Burnt Shadows did well in the one after God and Every Stone did much less well. And the one after Home Fire did much better than anything before. And I still love A God and Every Stone the most. And I'm at peace with all of that hmm. in a way that you can be in your 40s. I think this is also, yeah. I think in your... I think in your thirties, you're there's more of a sense of unease and, you know, not not having that sense of comfort in your own skin, and be willing to to ride with things. So I think I'd be a possibly a more anxious version of me. Um, but also maybe that experience of disappointment, setback, it might actually get into the work in interesting ways. You know? That's what I mean. What's what is interesting yeah. about because you've you've had a few of them now, right? You've right, right from that moment of not getting into your, or not being able to get the teaching role at the MFA and you've dipped. And I think it's really amazing to watch you sort of do the emotional, you know, you've kind of had the dip and then you've gotten yourself back out, which is a really a different experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I'm, I'm a, I'm a different writer. Maybe there's more difficulty. Maybe I'm more interested in, internal lives of characters earlier you know it, mm. it takes a while with my novels actually for me to really get into the internal lives um maybe that is happening earlier that's uh, interesting what do you prioritize over the internal lives um things that are happening mm. you know um so there, there's less sort of really burrowing deep into what these people are thinking more these are this is how actions are impacting on their lives kind of thing. Um, this mm. is how the world and politics and history is is true. moving their life in this way or that. What I'm what I'm wondering is mm. through what's now going to be your ups and downs of this um, slightly parallel but also profoundly different writing career is just whether Alexandra shows up again. Yeah, this one I thought I was like, well, but you know, Alexandra is that editor in the UK who has a you know, is known for having a particularly international list and interest in writers from different parts of the world. And and she would still be that person who published my great aunt. Ah, uh, yes, of course. So at some point I suspect that connection gets made. And yeah, I, I like to think that that it's kind of a reverse. So in my actual world, Alexandra's first my editor and then on sort of the seventh novel Becky Salatan comes along and in this mm. altered version Becky gets there earlier and then but yeah Alexandra does still come along except I don't grow up with her in the same way so you know she's still the most amazing person but it it's not it's not the same relationship so yeah so a lot has come back but it's fundamentally very different because its origin points are so different it's amazing that you can have what sort of looks on the well when you talk about the external versus the internal you can well you can have something that looks on the outside like a profoundly similar existence but yeah. feels so totally different on the inside yeah well that feels like a good place to stop what do you think it does I'm, I'm glad i'm still a writer and i still have the friends i do and alexandra i feel relieved about that i'm concerned about my agent victoria who has been my agent and very good friends for <laughs> years so i may have to ditch the new york agent and end up with Victoria just because. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're in London, you're meeting all of these people yeah. at some point, you might feel like you need someone a little closer to home. Yeah. So sorry, New York agent. We were great for a while, but now I've got Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be pleased too. I'm sure. I'm sure she will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Miriam. 
Sometimes, when carving out an unlived path, people worry when they don't end up somewhere dramatically different from where they started. It feels like a failure somehow. But it's often the case that our unlived lives dovetail with our lived ones, and I don't think it's good or bad. It's just where they needed to go. I liked how Kamala noticed that her life had ended up the same on the outside, while it was her character that had changed, giving her taste of another way she might have been. Again, not better or worse, just different. Like trying on different hats, or like the flow of the ocean tides she grew up on. In reality, we can't be everything at once. But I think sometimes it's nice just to visit these other parts of ourselves, to move back and forth between them, the way Kamala moved between cities. Kamala allowed herself to experience a different kind of self, a different internal city, if you will, before coming back to land right where she began. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.